Thanks, John. It's Worship Pastor John Brewer there. So, so thankful for John and his leadership and that we get to serve uh, together on, on a team of such great pastoral leaders here at Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman, and I, I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and it's so great to have each one of you here with us this morning. Thanks for, for coming, especially if you are a, a first-time guest. So thankful that you're here. Um, I'd love to, to meet you afterwards and say hi. John mentioned the guest table. Um, and would love to, to get to connect with you. So um, before we uh, look at this final text in the book of Hebrews, this last passage, uh, it's been six months that we've been looking at this book together. I'd love to pray um, and ask for God's help as we do uh, look at his word. So uh, let's do that, and then we'll, we'll dive in uh, to this text this morning. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this journey. Uh, Thank you for the letter that you have given us, the letter of Hebrews, and for all that we have learned um, as a congregation together, um, that as this little church um, in in, uh, maybe in Rome, we're not even sure exactly where it was, uh, benefited from this letter, uh, you have also helped us uh, 2,000 years later um, to benefit from this letter and, and all that it's highlighted about who Jesus is. And so I pray that even in these final uh, verses um, that we would continue to see that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater, that he is highly exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, every once in a while, uh, there is a piece of, of humor uh, that comes along that, uh, that so sort of perfectly satirizes um, kind of the human condition, uh, a painful truth about who we are as people, uh, that, that you have to laugh just, just to keep from crying. Uh, it's, it's that dead on. And, and a few weeks ago, I read an article uh, on The Onion, which is kind of a satirical uh, fake news site, um, which elicited just such that kind of a reaction from me. It was, it was, so, um, it was so honest. Uh, it, it was, you, you had to laugh just to keep from crying. And uh, in the headline of the article, is, I think I have a picture of it here. Um, the headline of the article uh, was, was this. It says, brutally honest new Revlon ad campaign reminds customers you can't change what you are. And here just a few, again, this is, this is humor. It's a satire. This is a few of the opening lines from this article. Asserting that makeup can do little beyond creating a fleeting illusion of youth and beauty, cosmetics giant Revlon launched a new series of ads this week aimed at reminding its customers they will never be able to change what they are. <laughs> the company's You Are What You Are campaign, which debuted in dark, haunting multi-page spreads in several major fashion magazines, cautions consumers that at best makeup is a sad disguise people hide behind in a futile attempt to avoid the uncomfortable facts about their true nature. Um, and then it, it goes on. It doesn't stop there. So listen to other few other these choice lines. This is from the, the president of the, of the company. If you're disappointed by what you see on the outside, just imagine how horrifying you must be on the inside. <laughs> That's the message we're trying to convey to our customers. He added, you can conceal crow's feet, but you can never conceal the appalling reality that is yourself. And it's too late to do anything about it. Far too late. Um, And and we we laugh at that. Um, But but we know, you have to laugh just to keep from crying, because I think we all feel that at some level, that there's this ugliness that's inside of us. Because I think deep down, every one of us knows that at one level, this article is exactly true. That we know there are aspects of our character, of, of who we are on the inside. The, the, the way that we think about people, the way that we treat people, that, that are inexcusable. And, and that our best efforts to change are, are merely sort of makeup that temporarily conceal who we are, rather than actually truly transforming who we are deep down. 
I mean, we wish we could stop this bad habit, that we could keep up with those good habits. And yet time and time and time again, it seems like we find ourselves doing the same old things or or not doing the same old things that that we've been trying to change for so long. And I feel this. Um, Just recently, back in the middle of May, I celebrated my birthday. And, And birthdays can always be a little bit discouraging for me, not because I'm getting older. Actually, that doesn't really bother me all that much. But birthdays are just these milestones of remembering, like, how little I've truly changed in some ways over the last decades of my life. And so when I was younger, I'd think, oh, man, by the time I graduate from high school or, or college, or by the time I'm 25, or by the time I'm, I'm 30, then, then I'll really have this or that under control, or that won't be a temptation, or, or I'll be better at really managing money. And, and at 32, you realize, man, so many of these things are still here they still are temptations. They still are issues. And it seems sort of like if you have a grease stain on the wall and you can paint over it, but just slowly it still begins to, to leak through time and again. But for all of the horrifying truth <laughs> that is conveyed in that Onion article, is the last line really true? Is that last line that it's too late to change? It's far too late to change. Is that true? Is it really too late for you to change? Is it, is it too late for me? Well, at one level, if, if we're trying to do this on our own, it, it absolutely is too late. But there's good news. There's good news for all of us who have fatal flaws that continually haunt us, and that is that we are not on our own that God is at work also, and the good news is that God is not finished with you yet. God is not finished with you yet. You see, in the gospel, in this new eternal covenant that we read about through Jesus, our great shepherd, God has promised that he will deal with every one of our fatal flaws. This is our great hope, that if Jesus was raised from the dead, if God can do that, if God can raise Jesus from the dead— then he can restore us. That if he can do that, then surely he can do this work of restoration. If God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, then surely he has the power to actually transform who we are at a deep level. And so we're going to see this morning in in these verses, we're going to focus on, on verses 20 and 21, that if God can do that, if God can do this resurrection work in Jesus, then he can surely do this work of restoring us. And, and this is our last message in the book of Hebrews um, that we've been studying. We started in January, so it's been a six-month chunk of time looking at this incredible letter that's exalted Jesus and just showed time and again that Jesus is better, Jesus is greater. And as we come to these closing verses, this, this is what we call uh, a benediction. So it's called, scholars call it benediction. And if you've grown up in the church or if you've gone to religious ceremonies, weddings, funerals, you may have experienced Someone's saying, now I want to give you a benediction. But, but what is a benediction? Well, a benediction, is, it just means a good word. It's a word of blessing, an affirmation, an encouragement, ascending even. And I love what New Testament commentator Peter O'Brien says about this. He says, benedictions are both affirmations as well as prayers. He says, benedictions are both affirmations regarding the grace and peace that God has given us and their prayers that we may experience those things more fully. So it's both an affirmation of what we receive from God as well as a prayer that we would experience them more fully. 
So in this first part of the passage, in verse 20, the author is affirming to us the unparalleled benefits that we have in the gospel that have come to us. And in in the second part, in verse 21, he's praying that we would experience those benefits, those realities, to an even greater level, to an even greater extent. So if you have a Bible with you or grab one from the pew, I'd love for you even to look with me um, at, at verse 20, where the author writes, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the, great sh- from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And in verse 20, the verse hinges on, it, it centers on this reality of the resurrection. So, so what has God accomplished in the resurrection? If, if God is able to do this incredible work of re- resurrection, what is it that he has accomplished in it? Well, well first, we see, we see three things in this, in this verse. First, he's defeated death. Again, the key phrase here is that God has brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead in history, in time and space, bodily. Not just, not just metaphysically, not, or metaphorically, not just metaphysically, not spiritually, but he's raised bodily from the dead in time and space. That is the core truth on which all of Christianity is based. I mean, Christianity didn't begin with someone thinking about how could we start a religion? It began with someone rising from the dead and people saying, okay, well, he, what, he must have, there must have been something special about him because he actually rose from the dead. It began with a good news report. All of Christianity is based on a fact Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that is the reason that, that I am a Christian, is that I found the resurrection of Jesus to be both intellectually credible and existentially satisfying at the deepest level. Because if that's not true, then, then the rest of this just all slides away. Books like uh, N.T. Wright's book, um, Surprised by Hope, I think I got a picture of it here. This is, if you're, thinking, if you're wondering about the intellectual credibility piece, I'm like, can I really believe the resurrection? This book has been massively helpful to me, and I encourage you to, to read it. The first part of it's a little tough, I'll tell you. It's a little uh, tough sledding. The first, I think it's divided into three parts. The first part, the second two parts are amazing. If you're wondering about the intellectual credibility of the resurrection, there's nobody better than N.T. Wright to help you on that. However, it's been storytellers like J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis have helped me with the existentially satisfying part. Why is the resurrection so meaningful? How does it transform the way we think and feel about the world? And I, and I love this, this piece in The Lord of the Rings, in the final book, at the, the Return of the King, at the very end of the book. There's just been a great battle in which the, the, the evil that has been haunting Middle-earth has been defeated. And, and the character Sam, he, he's finally awoken. He's been in kind of a, a coma. He's been asleep for a long time. And this is what he says when he wakes up. He exclaims, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But, but then I thought I was dead myself. And then he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. You see, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a great shadow has departed. The great shadow of death has departed. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, (laughs) now even death itself has begun to work backwards. You see, the resurrection changes everything. 
But not only has the resurrection defeated death, it is also the guarantee that this eternal covenant has been enacted. So there's this language of that Jesus has been brought to, to life by the blood. He's been brought back from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. So what this text means when it says that God has brought Jesus back from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant is that it means that the covenant that God has made with his people has been enacted. It's been solidified. It, it's real. Again, uh, Peter O'Brien is helpful here. He says, Christ's resurrection is the demonstration that the sacrifice of himself, Jesus' sacrifice himself, has been accepted by God and the new covenant has been established. This has been the whole message of the book of Hebrews from the very beginning to the very end, that Jesus is the new and better and final way of relating to God, that he's established this new way of relating to God called the new covenant. And it's by his blood. We started this message series with an equation. Uh, It looked like this, that Jesus is greater than blank. And that anything you put in that blank, the equation is always true. No matter what you place into that blank, Jesus is always greater. This new covenant that Jesus established with us is eternal. It's eternally better. You can't do better than Jesus. You can't do better than Jesus. And also in the resurrection, we see that God is the God of peace and that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. So God has revealed himself to be the, the God of peace as well as he's also revealed us to be the God, the great shepherd of the sheep. So this title, God of peace, it says, now may the God of peace, that's how the passage starts. This language of God of peace, it's unique to the New Testament. That isn't a title that, that we have for God in the Old Testament. It's unique in the New Testament to describe God as the God of peace. You see, because of what Jesus has done in offering himself as the perfect sacrifice, when that enacts this new eternal covenant that we've been, we've been learning about all through the book, and the hallmark of that covenant is the forgiveness of sins. As a result of all that, we can now be at peace with God. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts this in, in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The new covenant has allowed us to be at peace with God. So now we know God as the God of peace. And not only is Jesus our Lord, but he's also the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews says. I I, I love this because there's such a, even kind of a contrast in the beginning of the book of Hebrews all the way to the end. How does, is Jesus described in the very beginning of the book of Hebrews? If you go back to chapter one, the first description we find of Jesus in the book of Hebrews is that he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But the final description we get of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, what does the author leave us with? He leaves us with the picture of Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep, as the one who watches over us, who knows us, who cares for us. You see, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 23 of the good shepherd that's described there. You may be familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, if we have Jesus as our great shepherd, if he is the great shepherd of the sheep, then then we will not be in need, for Jesus provided everything we need. 
We will never ultimately be in danger because he has defeated death, the only thing that can ultimately harm us. And another great promise of Psalm 23 is that the great shepherd Jesus is the one who restores our souls. Did you catch that language in there? That that he promises to restore our souls. Which this leads us to part two of the message. So if Jesus can do, if God can do all of that, if if he can restore Jesus, if he can bring him back from the dead, if he can raise him from the dead, then, then he can surely do this work of restoration in our lives. And we have this great hope that that we can change. We have this great hope that our souls can be restored. We have the great hope that God isn't finished with us yet. So, So look again now at verse 21. It says, May God equip you with everything good that you may do God's will, working in us through, which is pleasing in his sight forever, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, in verse 21, we now we see three things here. We see three things that God is at work doing to restore us. That he's at work doing to, to change us from the inside out. And first, we see that he can restore us. The text says that God is at work equipping us, that he's at work equipping you. Now, in this context, the word that's translated equip there actually has the more specific nuance, not of outfitting someone for a journey or even of giving someone a set of skills, but actually has the idea of restoration. If you look up the the background of this word, it means to be caused to be in a condition to function well, to put in order, to restore it was actually used in ancient literature to describe someone who, who adjusts someone's parts of the body, almost like a kind of like a chiropractor, uh, someone who adjusts parts of the body. This equipping means it's a restoration work. In fact, what's so interesting is that this word is even used in Hebrews chapter 11 to talk about creation. So if you look back at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created. It's the same word that's translated equipping here in our verse. Was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. See, God created us and the entire world by his word. And now he's recreating us, restoring us by his living word, Jesus, who's revealed to us in his written word, the Bible. God is about restoring his people. And notice that this equipping, this restoration is for everything good. God is restoring you with everything good. Not not just a few good things, not with just a little bit of goodness, but with everything good. And why is this? He says so so we can do his will. It's not just because. Uh, Goodness is never just for itself. Restoration isn't just about us. It's about God. It's about what He's doing. It's about other people. He's the one who's doing this for His sake. Even our goodness is ultimately for God's sake, for His glory. So what needs to be restored in your life? Uh, maybe, maybe it's the words that you use, how you talk to people, how you talk about people. Maybe it's how you spend or, or, or don't spend your money. Maybe it's, maybe it's a pattern of fear or anger. Maybe it's a habit of eating or drinking too much. I, I don't know what it is for you. 
but ask that God that question. Maybe make that your prayer this week. God, what, what is it that you need to restore in my life? What is it that you need to restore? And, and then just take some time and listen, because sometimes the things that first come to our minds maybe aren't the, the most important things. And oftentimes we tend to think of things on the surface, and maybe there's something a little bit deeper down that God needs to do work. God, what do you need to restore in me? Where have you tried to change yourself but constantly face defeat and failure? Invite God into those spaces. Rather than getting discouraged in those moments, use them as, as opportunities to say, God, I see this is an area where I need restoration. Would you come help me in this place? Ask him to restore you, even if that restoration hurts. And, and actually, I can guarantee that, that it will hurt in, in some way, at least some of the time. Um, it, it's, it, it'll probably cost you something. You're going to experience a, a cost. It won't be easy. But remember, God isn't finished with you yet. You are being restored, and one day you will be fully restored, complete, whole, perfect, lacking nothing. How do I know? How can I say that so confidently? Because Jesus defeated death. If he can do that, then, then he can do this. So God can restore, but, but second, he can also, in that restoration, he can make us beautiful. And this kind of goes back to the onion article we talked about at the very beginning here, that, that we all have a longing for, for, for beauty, and, and not just external beauty, but to, to be beautiful people on the inside, to be the sorts of people that when, when our, our kids or our friends would look back on us in, in years to come after we've died, they would say, wow, what an incredible person. We, we all have this intrinsic longing, not just to, to be physically beautiful, but to be deeply beautiful of soul, to be the kinds of, of people who, who are honest and, and integral. And we want that kind of wholeness and beauty and, and we long for acceptance and approval. We, we long for someone to say to us, you are beautiful. You are good. You are pleasing to me. I love you. Our, our, we are wired for that. A desire for approval actually isn't a flaw in you. <laughs> Oftentimes we look for it in the wrong places, but we are wired to seek that approval from the one who made us. You see, God can do and is doing that for you in Jesus. He's making you beautiful. This verse says that he's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Did you see that? God is actually making you pleasing. He's making what you do pleasing in his sight. You see, in the gospel, you are pleasing to God. In the gospel, if you are adopted as a son or a daughter, then you are fully pleasing to God, even now as you're still in process. Therefore, what God says of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, he, Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water and there's a voice and it says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. If you are in Christ, God says that of you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased. Not because of anything that you have done, but simply because who you are in Christ. I'm well pleased with you. When God looks at you in Christ, he sees not only who you were, who you are, but he also sees who you will be one day when you are fully restored in Christ. 
And he can say without hesitation, you are my beloved son, you're my beloved child, you're my beloved daughter. With you I'm well pleased. So where do you feel ugly? Where do you see ugliness in the world? God is going to make those things beautiful one day. When we look around at the world, we see a lot of ugliness, don't we? I mean, cancer, divorce, abuse, depression, loneliness, violence. We could go on and on in a list of ugly things in the world. But God promises to make beauty out of ashes. God isn't just a God who creates, but He's a God who recreates, who restores. In the Old Testament, there's a great passage in, this, in one of the prophets. Uh, the Old Testament's the first part of the Bible. Is a, in one of the prophets, Isaiah. There's a great passage that explains the reason that the Messiah, that Jesus is going to come, and the reason He's actually going to come again. And it's this. It says, To comfort all who mourn and provide who grieve in Zion and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. God is coming to do that work. God isn't finished with you yet. He isn't finished with you yet. So where do you look for beauty? Where do you look for meaning, for hope? According to verse 21, God the God of peace, is doing all these things through Jesus for his glory. You can't do better than Jesus. And again, how do we know? Because he's been raised from the dead. If he can do that, then he can surely do this work. So so God restores, he makes beautiful, and he can bring glory. He can actually bring glory to you and to me for his sake, At the end of verse 21, God says, the God of peace is doing all these things through Jesus for Jesus' glory. So God is doing this work of restoring, of equipping, of making us pleasing. He's doing all that work through Jesus, and it's ultimately for Jesus' glory. So so why is God not done with you yet? Because Jesus isn't receiving maximum glory yet. Why is God not finished with you yet? Because Jesus has yet to receive all the glory that he can. Why is God restoring you through Jesus so that Jesus can be glorified? Why is God making you beautiful through Jesus so that Jesus receives glory? <laughs> the question is, though, I mean, so glory is such kind of a, it's a big term. What, is, what does glory actually mean? What does it mean that God's receiving glory, or, or what is glory? I love, actually, there's a great resource called the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, and I, I love how it, it kind of captures this idea of glory. It says glory includes splendor, beauty, magnificence, radiance, and this is glory is an image of divine transcendence. God's transcendence is his far-offness, his otherness. It's a, it's a picture of God's divine transcendence as it makes itself visible to people. So when God and all of his perfection and holiness and otherness makes himself visible supremely in Jesus, that's glory. And actually goes on to say it combines both awe and terror. It simultaneously invites approach as well as distance. It is paradoxically a divine quality that is remote from all of our human finitude, and yet it is held out to us as believers as something in which we will share. This is incredible. That God's glory is something that characterizes him as completely other and different from us, and yet he holds it out as something that we will one day, even now, as his creatures, we participate in in some way. You are an agent for God's glory. It's ultimately why you exist. 
why all of us exist, why everything that is made is exists to bring glory to Jesus. Through Jesus, you can be who you were created to be. The early church leader, Irenaeus, put it this way. He says, the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. That when we as creatures are restored to all that we were created to be, then God's glory shines through us. And this is a major part of, of what Christian marriage is about. It's a major part of what actually all of Christian community is about. Is about looking ahead and joining with God in the work he's already redoing to reveal our future glory selves in Christ. Uh, Listen to what Pastor Tim Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. I love this. He says, what then is marriage for? What is the big why of marriage? He says it's for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. He says, within this vision of Christian marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. This is so key. Don't miss this. This is what it means to fall in love in Christian marriage. It's to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you. It excites me. I want to be a part of that. That's what Christian marriage is all about. It's indeed, that's what all of Christian community is about. That's why our our community groups are so vital. That's why our friendships are so vital. Because in true Christian community, in true Christian relationships, every one of us ought to be looking at one another and say, I see a tiny glimpse of who you're going to be one day in the future, and I want to be a part of helping to bring that reality to being even now. God, would you use me in some small way to help my spouse, to help my friend, to help my, my child, my sister, my brother, to become the person that God is going to make them one day. So where do you feel disgrace? Are you seeking glory or are you giving glory? See, life is so much better when it's not about you. It really is. When life is not about you, it is really so much more enjoyable. When it's about Jesus' glory, not about our glory, we can finally stop taking ourselves so seriously. I think one of the greatest characteristics of someone who the gospel has really gotten in deep and started to transform them is that they're so quick to laugh at themselves. They're not so uptight. They're they're not so self-conscious anymore. We like to say at Christ Community, we take the gospel deadly seriously, but we don't take ourselves that seriously. We just don't have to anymore because it's not about us. And when it's not about you, when you don't have a reputation to protect, when you you don't have an image to uphold, then you can actually really just care about other people and enjoy life. It's such a freeing thing. We're quick to laugh at ourselves. We We can take criticism without falling into despair. It doesn't mean that criticism is fun to take. Every Monday morning, we, we debrief our, our time on Sunday morning, and, you know, I never love it when, when I have to get feedback on my message. It's not a fun part of my day, but it doesn't crush you anymore. If you, if you really have the gospel deep down, you can have the freedom to just learn from it, right? We don't have to be paralyzed by self-consciousness because we're, we're free to forget about ourselves. When life isn't about you, you finally have the freedom to enjoy it for what it is actually about, glorifying God by enjoying him forever. 
So much of this passage, and I, and I love this about this passage, much of it is about what God is doing. There's not really a lot of instruction here about what we're doing. This is what God is promising to do for us. He's not done with you yet. But, but the question here at the end is, is, is there any role for us to play? I mean, do we just kind of sit back on the couch with a bag of potato chips and say, well, I hope God gets this done in my life? Are, are we passive in all of it? And the answer is no. And this is one of the greatest mysteries of, of, of Christian faith, this, this mystery of what theologians call the con- concursive activity of God, that there's two parties at work, and, and yet God is empowering even our, our efforts, a transformation. So, so God is working in and through you to accomplish all of this. And as he does, you will find yourself doing these things. So, so as God is at work in your life, you'll find that you end up doing some of these things. And I just want to list about three of them. First, you'll find yourself depending on him. That when God begins to be at work in your life, we stop trying to change ourselves on our own, and we start depending on Jesus to rescue and restore us. We give up on our self-salvation projects and begin to say, God, if if my life is really going to change, you've got to be at work. We start inviting him into those places. So we start to depend. Uh, Second, when God is deeply at your work work in your life in this way, you'll also find yourself that that we are constantly reminding reminding yourself and you're reminding other people of who we really are in Christ and that that everything is about Him. So we depend, we remind. And then this is why community is so important, that reminding piece, because we need one another, again, to see those future glory selves and, and to help us get there. And then finally, we embrace. We embrace the hard work of becoming who we were created to be. Because becoming like Jesus is hard work. It's not easy. Everything in the world is aimed at you not becoming like Jesus, the way it's currently set up in its fallen state. And so when you start to to really make a serious effort to say, I want to become more like Christ, there's going to be all kinds of pushback, both internal and external. But the good news is that grace, it's, it's opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. The grace in your life actually fuels effort. And in this mystery, we, we call, are called to work hard, as, as hard as we can. And yet also, we are told that somehow in that work, it's actually God empowering it. So embrace his restoration, the beautification work that he's doing in your life. Embrace the glory that he's bringing about. Because God isn't finished with you yet. The message of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. From, from verse 1 to, to now the very final verses of this book, this is what the author has been driving home over and over and over again. Jesus is greater. But the question is, how did Jesus become greater? He did it by becoming nothing. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Philippians that though Jesus was made in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way in the kingdom to go up is to go down. 
And we ought not to expect that our own work of, of becoming like Christ would follow a different pattern than his. The way that we become great is to become nothing. That's Jesus. He's our great shepherd. He restores us. He is gentle and humble, and yet he is has unsurpassable power and might. He is strong and he is full of glory and he is not done with you yet. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is actually working in you if you are in Christ, transforming you, making you beautiful, restoring you forever for his glory, for his glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would do this work in our lives. Um, I even stand before you now, and I invite you into the broken places of my life that need restoration, the places that need to be made beautiful. I confess that so often my life is about my glory, not about yours. Father, free us through Jesus to make it not about us. And may we find in that, in becoming nothing, and making it all about you, making it about other people, will we just find that our lives are just repute with, replete rather with joy and wholeness and freedom. In Jesus' name, for his glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we celebrate communion together as a church family to remind us of the eternal covenant that makes all of that possible in celebrating the Lord's Supper, in celebrating communion, breaking the bread, and, and drinking the juice, it's a tangible reminder of this new covenant that's been enacted. Jesus said, this is the new covenant that I've made with you. The new covenant that's in my blood that provides the forgiveness of sins. This is what the book of Hebrews has been all about, the enacting of this new covenant, and it's what we celebrate this week and every week in communion. So if you're newer here, let me just explain how we, how we do this. Um, we have four communion stations around the room. There's two here in the front, and there's two in the back. Um, this one here in the backside here has uh, gluten-free communion elements, if, if that's something that you need. And we uh, just come uh, in groups and gather around, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then partake together in a group. And there's obviously pretty small, narrow aisles, so if you need to kind of climb over someone, if you're, especially if you're newer, to get in or out, totally okay. We're a family here. We get that. Um, it's part of being in a beautiful old building. And uh, you don't have to be a member of Christ's community um, to celebrate communion with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you say, yes, this is, he is my Lord, he is the great shepherd of, of my life, then you're welcome at his table. That, again, as John said earlier, if you're not here, uh, if you're, I mean, if you're here and that's not yet true of you, you're just, I'm just kind of checking this church thing out. I'm not sure if I'm ready to jump in with this. That's okay. We're so glad that you're here. And just invite you to use this time to continue to ask God to reveal himself to you. He is pursuing you. Ask him to help you see where he's at work in your life. So Jesus took bread on the night that he was betrayed, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus commands us to do this in remembrance of him. So I invite you now to come to the table of the one who restores you, who makes you beautiful, who is able to bring glory 
and enjoy the presence of Christ. Come when you're ready.